Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Kim Salzman. Kim was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. After receiving a degree in psychology from Columbia University, she lived and worked on a kibbutz in Israel, which inspired her to make Aliyah. After receiving her law degree from the University of Michigan, she immigrated to Israel, where she became fascinated by the stories of Jewish immigrants from all over the world. She served in the International Law Department of the Israel Defense Forces and also advocated for the legal rights of Ethiopian Israelis. Kim now lives in northern Israel with her husband, three children, and a dog. Currently, she works as the Israel and Overseas Director at the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh. Hi, Kim. I've read your compelling novel, Straddling Straddling Black and White, and I'm glad to have this opportunity to speak with you about it today. But first, I want to ask you how you and your family are doing in Israel since October 7th. So thank you, Meryl, for this opportunity to be on your podcast. Um, I think that question, how are we doing since October 7th, is just its so very difficult to answer. I actually wrote a piece about it recently in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, how in, in one moment you can feel so many, since October 7th, I, and I think I'm representative of many Israelis, just feel like this myriad of emotions where I can feel, you know, despair and hope at the same time. I can feel frustration and I can feel even, you know, moments of joy um, with my children. Um, I can feel scared for our safety. Um, and and um, so it's it's really just so many mixed emotions since October 7th. I think for me, it feels like October 7th has just been one really long day that everything we're today, it's December 14th, but it still feels like I'm stuck on October 7th with the trauma that we all experienced that day, that sense of, um, you know, of absolute lack of security where we had always so heavily and, and, and rightfully so relied on the IDF to be there to defend us. And and that day was a huge failure for the Israeli, for the state of Israel to defend its own people. We we failed on that day. Um, and now the Israel, the Israeli army is doing everything it possibly can to make sure that it will never happen again. Um, so I would say that I'm, you know, I'm struggling um to to find moments, you know, to to feel like that this this will this war will lead to a better future. I hope it will lead to a better future in Israel. Um, and, you know, as a mom to three kids, uh, I have t- twins who are 12 years old and an eight-year-old, it's been, we've done as, as much as we possibly can to shelter them from the, hor- the horrific news of what took place on October 7th. But there's a limit to how much you can shelter them because they see, of course, they've seen 
so many of their friends' parents get called up to reserve duty. Um, but then, you know, leaving our home, just going on any major road in Israel, you see the pictures of kidnapped children wherever you go. And so for them, that was, um, they knew that Israelis had been kidnapped, but they didn't know that children had been kidnapped and they didn't know that children had been killed. And that was something we couldn't, at some point when they started to enter into the real world and to leave our homes uh, in the weeks after October 7th, we weren't able to shelter the, them from that anymore. Um, and that was really hard to be a mom and to have to explain to them. And I, I still don't know how you explain it. How do you explain to your children that that there are people in the world like Hamas who want want to kidnap children and torture them and you know and potentially even worse um so that's been really hard and um every morning when i wake up in the morning that you know the the idf only announces to the public soldiers who have been killed after the family members of that soldier have been informed mm -hmm. and so in the morning usually they they announce who who has been who was killed in Gaza the day before. And for me, you know, checking the news every morning, which just like your heart stops for a minute because you're scared to death. It could be somebody that you know. And I don't know if you saw in the news, but just yesterday they announced that, that 10 Israeli soldiers were killed. And some of them were, you know, high ranking commanders who it's just, and many of them were, you know, fathers of young children, like just, the number of people in Israel, in Israel right now that are now bereaved families, it's just beyond, it's really, it's its hard to comprehend. But I think um, it's also hard to comprehend comprehend for people who, who live, let's say, you know, in the United States, which is such a mm -hmm. huge country. You want to just talk a little bit about, you know, what a a tiny country Israel is and how you're you're interconnected with with so many people. Right. So, you know, on I didn't personally know any victims on October 7th, but I knew lots of people that were affected. So, you know, on October 7th, I knew people that were at the party. I knew people that survived the party. Um, and I knew people that were in different kibbutzim that they actually, they managed to survive. And I, a former colleague of mine was from Faraza. I mean, Israel is such a teeny country. I live in Northern Israel, but for me to get to the, to the Gaza envelope where the attacks took place on October 7th, it's less than a two hour drive. I mean, it's, it's wow. just, it's all so very close. And now with so many reservists being called up to the IDF, more than 300,000 reservists have been called up and everyone has, you know, so you either have women my age, you know, in their 40s who their husbands, their husbands are in reserve duty, or, you know, or people that are older than me, who their children are in the IDF. Um, everyone I know is, is has someone serving right now. Um, and so it's it, like you said, it's all interconnected. And when, when someone is killed, serving in, in Gaza or on October 7th. It just is feeling like, well, it could have been my child. It could have been my husband um, because there is this strong sense of we're all in this together and it's such a small country. Everybody knows everybody. Um, so yeah, it's just, there just aren't enough words, I think, in in any language. I was listening to a, a another podcast the other day who, where the, the reporter was actually talking about how the, there aren't sufficient words in the Hebrew language 
to be able to describe what took place on October 7th. And there'll, there'll have to be new words added to the Hebrew language in order to be able to accurately describe it because we just are lacking the words. Wow, that that so, is that's uh, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's really sobering. Thank you um, for giving us um, your perspective and experience, Kim. And I hope that um, please stay safe. And you know, we are all praying for for Israel. Um, let's let's shift gears now and and talk about um, your very um, compelling novel, um, straddling black and white. Um, I've read it, and um, it's it's really um, it's a great story, and it's and it's it's a unique story. Um, so, for our listeners who haven't read it yet, um, why don't you give us a brief synopsis? Sure. So Straddling Black and White, it's a historical fiction novel uh, about one Ethiopian Jewish family who gets torn apart during Operation Moses. Operation Moses was the big operation that brought 8,000 Ethiopian Jews to Israel in 1984. Um, and so the story is about a mother and a father and their 14-year-old daughter from their three different perspectives. Um, who are torn apart during this operation where the father first immigrates to Israel or makes Aliyah to Israel, leaving his family behind. Uh, his 14-year-old daughter, Asmara, follows him in his footsteps and gets sort of stuck in Sudan in a refugee camp on her way to in transit to Israel. And then the mother, Tigis, left behind in Ethiopia, um, struggling to raise her her remaining four and then soon to be five children um, on her own without any help from her husband or from her oldest daughter. So that's so, a general synopsis. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, tell, tell us about um, the title. Um, and I'm curious, did you have other titles in mind or did you know mm -hmm. right away that this would be it? I think I knew right away that this was the title and I, you know, I think it, it, it can be interpreted in so many ways. For me, the way that I've always looked at it is it's not, of course, you know, the story is, of course, it's about Ethiopian Jewish immigrants coming, you know, presumably with, you know, with darker skin coming to Israel with where they're presumably, you know, Israelis with lighter skin, but it really, that's not what the title is, is getting at. Um, it's it's really getting at how Asma herself and Kabede as well, in their experience of, of making Aliyah to Israel, they were both sort of straddling two worlds. They were they were straddling the world in which they had come from, Ethiopia, and the world that they were now living in in Israel, and how they were so in many ways just so very polar opposite from one another, and they were trying both of them, and in, in you know what Asma much more successfully than Kabede, they were trying to um, to figure out how to how to straddle those two worlds. Um, so it's it's getting at that, and that I, that's really where my initial you know where where I came up with the the idea for the title. But then it also I think is addressing how, you know, Asma is a 14-year-old teenager. And I I remember myself as a 14-year-old teenager where I really, really saw the world in very black and white terms without any nuance. And mm -hmm. her experience, you know, her as she matures and after, you know, after she makes Aliyah, she's she's not only 
that she experienced, what she experienced in Sudan, the, you know, malnutrition and disease and all of the hardships that they experience in the refugee camp. But then she comes to Israel and not only is she growing up in age, but she's growing up in her emotional maturity and understanding of how the world is much more nuanced than, than the black and white world she had always sort of um, taken for granted. And, and she her the way her black and white way of looking at things as a 14 year old also begins to change when she learns about um her parents marriage and how her parents marriage would have been very much frowned upon in Israel and it would have been illegal in Israel because it was you know her mother was 13 years old when she was forced to be married to her father um but how Things are things were different in Ethiopia, and so learning the nuances of okay, there were different cultural norms in the country I came from than the country that I currently live in. It's not black and white that one is bad and one is good. It, so it's also getting at that that she's maturing, and as she matures, she understands that the world is much more complicated than the black and white world she had originally seen. Yeah, I have to say, um, you really did a great job of of getting into your character's head. So how were, how were you able to do that? Wow. Um, so first of all, I should say that I started writing this book in 2010 and I finished the last, I fit, you know, I submitted the, the book was ready to be published in 2020, 2022, the end of 2022. So it took me many, many years and I um, did a tremendous amount of research to make sure that I was as much as possible. I was portraying the experience, the both of life in Ethiopia and their immigration, you know, the, the journey to Sudan and their immigration to Israel, that I was portraying it as accurately as possible. And I interviewed Ethiopian Israelis to understand what their experiences were, were like, their personal experiences. Um, so I can say that with Tigis, the mother, some of her experiences when she talks about the hardships of just raising children and the stresses of everyday life. And I I really did, you know, I tried to take some of my own personal experiences as a mother, you know, Tigis gives birth to a premature baby. My twins were born premature. So obviously the experience was very, very different. The healthcare that my children received is, you know, in Israel is, you know, there's no comparing, but I think that I, I did try to like to, to um, dig into that experience. Uh, Asmara as a 14 year old and her, you know, Aliyah experience. So of course, I never made Aliyah from Ethiopia as a 14 year old. That's not something that I ever went through, but I did make Aliyah to Israel. I did do Ulpan and I did, um, have some similar experiences that I was able to sort of try to to um, to dig into and to and to you know to somehow to try to understand okay how would Asmara feel when she's in Ulpan class um, and and for example um, in terms of the experience of the journey to to Sudan and the time in the refugee camp. Like I said, a lot of it was through my colleagues having conversations with them about what their journey to Ethiopia, to, from Ethiopia to Sudan was like. 
and what their time in the refugees camps was like and in reading different personal accounts and different historical books about Ethiopian Aliyah. Trying as, I tried as much as possible to immer immerse myself in that world so that I was able to, to as much as possible accurately reflect their experiences. Wow. Okay. That's, that's, that's great. Um, why, why did you decide to write a book about Ethiopian Aliyah? And obviously it was very important because you, you worked on it for, for so many years. So, um, what was, what was your passion in inspiring you to, to write this book? Yeah. Great question. So, even before I made Aliyah, when I was considering making Aliyah, I remember just always having this genuine curiosity for the the story, the Aliyah stories of other new immigrants. It really didn't matter where they came from, whether it was from Morocco or Russia or from the United States or from Ethiopia or from Argentina. Like I just wanted to, I wanted to hear what what led people to to uproot their lives and come to Israel and try to start anew and to learn the Hebrew language and to become a part of the miraculous story that is the state of Israel. Um, so that's something that's always been of interest to me. And when I started working at uh, Tebaka, you mentioned earlier that I worked for an organization helping to support the legal rights of Ethiopian Israelis. That was when I really became, you know, like I said, I, I had colleagues who had, they themselves had made uh, Aliyah from Ethiopia. Um, and so working at that organization inspired me to go to Ethiopia. I traveled to Ethiopia on my honeymoon with my husband. And so traveling throughout Northern What, what was Ethiopia, that like? <laughs> it was um, not your typical honeymoon destination. Uh, we were there for almost a month. And we spent most of our time in northern Ethiopia. Actually, that's the region of the country where most Ethiopian Jews came from. So we were spent a lot of time in the Gonda region, which is where most of the Ethiopian Jewish villagers came from. Um, and we we hiked in the Simeon Mountains, which is where this you know that's that's on the the route to Sudan. Um, so when I came back from Ethiopia, I mean that was I think that was an experience that that changed me in many ways um, to like, I, I gained a newfound, even though I had already appreciated everything that Ethiopian uh, Jews had, had, had sacrificed in order to make Aliyah, the trip to Ethiopia, to Ethiopia really strengthened, strengthened and deepened that appreci appreciation. Um, and I enrolled in a writing course I had always loved to write, and, I, and somehow the first chapter of the book was the very first submission for the writing course, where um, it was just a story that I felt like I, I I I could tell, I wanted to tell, that needed to be told. Um, did you did you ever consider making it nonfiction, or it was always um, a novel in your mind? No, it was always a novel in my mind because, and that was something that I learned. The more research I did, you know, there are nonfiction books about Ethiopian Aliyah in English, but mm -hmm. at the time that I was writing my novel, there were no historical fiction novels about Ethiopian Aliyah in English, and I really felt that. It was a story that more people needed to know about. It was, just, and you know, American Jews for the most part they're aware of Ethiopian Aliyah and Ethiopian Jews, but I don't think that many of them really understand everything that they had to sacrifice in order to make Aliyah. You know that there were 
8,000 that came in Operation Moses successfully that immigrated to Israel, but there were 4,000 that died along the way. Mm -hmm. I don't think most people know that. Um, and so I became really determined that, you know, yes, I, I myself am not an Ethiopian Jewish immigrant to Israel, um, but the story hadn't been told. And I felt like I could tell it in a way that was compelling and compassionate um, through it being a historical fiction novel and where people could really connect with the characters. If it had been just a historical nonfiction book, I don't think that you would have had the same connection with the characters. And, and I think that connection is what brings it alive in a way that a, um, a nonfiction book yeah, it, it really does. So I, I'd like to ask you um about the characters in your book and and how um typical are they? Um for example, um after the initial culture shock, Asmara um makes a successful transition uh to life in Israel, um mm -hmm. while while her father um struggles and, and suffers terribly. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And yeah, and that was deliberate. I, uh, because the Ethiopian Aliyah experience is, is not, you know, nothing about any community is a monolith and definitely certainly not with the Ethiopian Israeli community. And so each individual has their own unique experience, but there, there are the successful Aliyah stories and then there are the less successful Aliyah stories. And I wanted to be able to tell both through those two characters and it's, you know, shouldn't come as a surprise that the character that's more able to easily integrate into Israeli society is is younger because she's more she's you know it's easier for her to learn the Hebrew language. It's easier her, for her to adapt to a new culture as a fourteen year old versus um, Kabete who's who's older. Um, and and so that that is typical for the most part that the younger Ethiopian Jewish immigrants were were more quickly able to integrate into Israeli society as compared to the older uh, olim or immigrants. Um, and also that for the most part, this is again, this is a big generalization and it's not the case for everyone, but the um, Ethiopian, uh, Israel, Ethiopian Israeli men had a harder time adjusting and integrating versus women because they had come from a very patriarchal patri patriarchal society in Ethiopia. Uh, and when they came to Israel, it, it wasn't it wasn't the case. Um, and so many men sort of felt like they had, you know, they had worked as far they had worked in farming in Ethiopia and they they were sort of the man of the house of the household and the head of the house. And then in Ethiopia, when they come to Israel, they're no longer able to work in not not nearly to the extent in agriculture. Um, many of them are living in, you know, crowded apartments. So that that sort of is a very different lifestyle. Um, and they're no longer necessarily the man of the house anymore because their wives now are are going out and working and 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 perhaps even learning the language, you know, more more easily than they are, and certainly their children, and all of that was a real challenge for um, for Ethiopian male immigrants, especially. Thank you for that. Um, so tell us a, a little bit about um, your experience uh, working with Ethiopian Jews, and I'm wondering if there was a a particular person or perhaps an experience that inspired you to write the book? Hmm. <clears throat> um, 
so my experience working with Ethiopian Jews is that um, they are incredibly, incredibly Zionistic. I mean, I, I look at my experience making Aliyah as an American Jew coming to coming to Israel. I made, you know, some small sacrifices and giving up on some of the comforts of life in America. But at the end of the day, the, and some dis, and distance from my family, but Ethiopian Jews have been literally like dreaming, yearning to return to the land of Israel for thousands of years. And I don't think that there are many Jew, Jewish people out there that have the same level of, um, of passion and yearning to return home to Israel like Ethiopian Jews do. And that's really what inspired me to write the book. Not necessarily one person, but their their true, true, deep sense of Zionism, because um, I consider myself a Zionist as well. Um, and that that's really what was inspiring to me. But what also what did surprise me is, and again, this isn't the case for every for everyone in the Ethiopian Jewish community at all. Um, but you know, I I do through my work, I get to sometimes meet with uh, Ethiopian Jewish teenagers, Ethiopian Israeli teenagers. And I, you know, and I've asked some of them about their their parents' aliyah story, because these are mostly Ethiopian Israelis that were born here in Israel. So I'm curious about their parents' aliyah story. And so, sometimes they they really don't know their parents' aliyah story. And at first that was that was really surprising to me and in some way almost disappointing because I felt like, well, how could they not know? How could they not be curious? How could they not want to know? And the more I sort of dug deep and tried to understand why is this the case, the more I realized that there's so many factors going on here that first, you know, their parents might have made the journey from Ethiopia to Sudan and experienced hor horrific, traumatic, you know, experiences along the way so that they needed in order for them to cope, they needed to suppress those experiences and certainly not share them with their children. Um, so that's something that can explain, how, you know, why they didn't necessarily know about, um, children didn't necessarily know about the heroic journey that their parents had, had gone on. Um, and then the, also just the cultural barriers between the, the, the generation of Ethiopian Israelis that were born in Ethiopia and the older generation that had made Aliyah to Israel. I think that for some Ethiopian Israeli teens, there's almost this this sense of, um, I don't know, shame or embarrassment of, you know, well, my parents, they came from, you know, they're, they're not necessarily, um, they're not, you know, they, they're, my parents don't speak, they're not fluent in Hebrew, they don't, they haven't really integrated into Israeli culture and into Israeli society. And so therefore, you know, there's some sense of shame. It's something that a lot of immigrants experience that the second generation, sort of is, is no longer, um, kind of looks down on the first generation just because they, you know, they hadn't fully integrated. And so for me, that was surprising to see that there were teenagers that didn't necessarily know the story of, of the tremendous hero heroism of their parents and their immigration to Israel. Um, but there are a lot of organizations in Israel today that are helping to address that, that are really especially like the Ethiopian National Project, for example, is an organization that is really working with teenagers so that they can learn the stories of their parents. And they have a project called Project Tiyud where the teenagers are actually documenting the stories of their parents 
the Aliyah story so that they, so the stories won't be forgotten on the one hand, but also so that the teenagers can better know the stories of their parents so that they can be proud of everything that their parents sacrificed in order to come to Israel. Yeah, that's, that's very important. That that's a good thing. So I'm asking you this question, I guess, from an American perspective, um, you know, the, the title kind of, um, engenders the question, you know, certainly for Americans, I think. Uh, so have Ethiopian Jews um, become completely assimilated today, or do they suffer from discrimination in Israel? Good question. Um, so if you look right now, who's serving in the IDF, you will see um, you know, Ethiopian Israelis serving next to everyone else from all different sectors in Israeli society, whether it's um, Orthodox, secular, Druze, Bedouin, Ashkenazi, Mizrahi, Ethiopian, they're all serving in the IDF together and they're all putting their lives on on the line to protect um, pr to protect Israeli civilians, because um, that's the job of, of the IDF right now, and to dismantle Hamas and to return the hostages. So in that sense, like Ethiopian Israelis are are fully integrated in, in that sense. Um, but there are still gaps. There are gaps in uh, academic achievement in a number, the percentage, the it's the percentage of Ethiopian Israelis that are going on to study in universities versus in colleges, because there's a distinction in Israel. Um, what, what is it, the distinction? Right. So so university to get accepted to most universities, you have to have a higher uh, what's equivalent to like the SAT score. You have to have mm -hmm. a higher SAT yeah. score than to get it accepted into some of the private colleges. Um, it's it's different in the in the United States. It's sort of it's kind of the the opposite. Sometimes the private colleges in the states could be more elite than the public universities, but here in Israel, it's it's a it's different. Um, and so there still isn't they're still not fully represented represented in all of the different. Um, in, in the job market, in the Knesset, in the in the court system, you know, everywhere. And there still is disproportionate uh, number of Ethiopian Israelis held in prison. Um, there's a dispro disproportionate number of Ethiopian Israelis that are, um, you know, th there are issues of alcoholism and drug abuse amongst Ethiopian Israeli uh, teenagers and and young adults. Um, so there still are gaps and there are lots of organizations that are trying to, to narrow those gaps, but there have also been tremendous achievements by the Ethiopian Israeli um, sector in Israeli society. I think that like, that what is there still discrimination? Yeah, I'm sure that there are cases of discrimination, but I think that for the most part, Isra Israeli Jews, no matter what their back, you know, from, from all different backgrounds, um, have great respect for for the Ethiopian Jewish um, story. In fact, just recently, a few years ago, the Israeli the Ministry of Education decided to add more education about Beta Israel, about the Ethiopian Jew, uh, about Ethiopian Jewish the Ethiopian Jewish experience, their Aliyah to Israel, and the Sigd holiday. Um, for Ethiop for Israeli kids to have a better understanding of of the Ethiopian Israeli story. Um, so yes, I'm sure that there are cases of discrimination. There are cases of perhaps racial profiling in the police. 
um, but there are also lots of successes. Okay, well, that 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 is interesting. Thank you for answering that question. Um, so our, our time is drawing to a close. I just have a, a few more um, quick questions from you. Um, what message or messages did you want readers to get from the book? So the first thing I want readers to get from the book is just a sense of awe and admiration for for Ethiopian Aliyah, for everything that Ethiopian Jews have had to sacrifice in order to come to Israel and to start a new life here in Israel, because I think it's one of the most miraculous stories um, since, the, since the founding of the State of Israel. Um, and I do think that um, understanding that can also help people to, con to connect to the story of Zionism and to the story of Israel generally beyond Ethiopian Aliyah. Like this, the, the Ethiopian Aliyah story of Operation Moses and then Operation Solomon, which followed it, is a source of pride. It should be, I think, and it is a source of pride for Jews all around the world. So I hope that when they read the story, they not only feel a sense of awe and admiration for Ethiopian Jews, but they feel a sense of pride in, in, in being Jewish themselves um, for those Jewish readers out there. Great. Um, so I I really um have to ask this question. Um mm -hmm. so what do you plan a sequel? I mean it's sort of, you know, we we had the 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 reunion of Asmara's parents um at the end. Um I I personally would like to read more about them. Do you plan a sequel or do you have any other um writing uh writing project uh, in the works? Yeah, I've been asked that question a lot. Um, I would love to write a sequel. I just, I right now, I'm, you know, I have three mm. relatively young children, a full-time job, and I just don't, I don't have the bandwidth for it, but maybe one day. Um, I myself would love to think that when they're reunited at the end of the book, that Tigis and Kabete are able to sort of start from scratch and to, and to have a healthier relationship where there's, you know, a stronger sense of trust and communication between the two of them. Um, and I also like to think that Mesky and Solomon, that they're the couple, it's sort of a, a sub-character, uh, sub-characters in the book, but I'd like to think that they're able to have children once they yeah. arrive to Israel after yeah. so many, yeah. so many, um, you know, attempts, failed attempts at having children. So um, there are so many stories to tell about what their lives would be like here in Israel. And maybe one day I'll do it. I just, I haven't gotten around to it yet. You know what it's like to write a book. And I, really I requires, know. Yeah. I know. So. And I, and I hope they will. And I'm thinking with the um, better medical care and reproductive uh, technology. Um, yeah. Hope, yeah. Hope we have some, um, some children. So uh, Kim, where can people find you online? So I have a website. It's www.kimsalzman. It's K-I-M-S-A-L-Z-M-A-N.com. Um, and so you can go to my website. If you're interested in purchasing, purchasing the book, you can get it on Amazon on barnesandnoble.com. Um, and of course, you know, I'm on Facebook. I have an author's page on Facebook as well with, okay, under great. the same name. Is there anything else you, you'd like to share with us before we uh, close? 
Um, you know, I just wanted to share that, uh, you know, I hope that all of your listeners are praying for better days in Israel because we need everyone's prayers. Um, and, and I wanted to thank you, Meryl, for, for reading my book, for highlighting my book and for, you know, for this podcast, for, you know, providing this platform for authors to, to, you know, to, to share their, their, their books with a with a larger audience. Well, I can, I can assure you, we, we are all praying uh, fervently uh, for the hostages and for everyone um, in Israel. Um, so thanks so much for joining us today, Kim Salzman. The book is Straddling Black and White. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Marilyn, the author of The Takeaway Men, and the sequel, Shadows We Carry, is available now. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at marilyn.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book.